Good morning. A little, a few more of you here than I thought there would be here. Um, how are some of you guys doing? I noticed Andrew was your son that had his shirt on backwards. Shane, I think it was your daughter. Is Carrie here? She's up at the retreat. You doing all right? Okay, good. Well, this morning, we're going to venture back into Genesis 25. We're going to spend the first half of the time in Genesis 25, and then we're going to go to uh, Romans 9. We need to go to Romans 9 because there are some giant obstacles in Genesis 25 that need to be understood before we can move forward. As I mentioned last week, we're going we're to tread into what I would call the theological deep end. And for me, being kind of a, a theological dwarf, I'm always in some place I'm in over my head. It's a great place to be to, to find complete dependence upon the Lord. But we're even going deeper this Sunday. We're going to be in the 15-foot end with no life preserver. All I can tell you is that you will be with me. We're going to be talking about something today that, that we all think we have the answers to. We've all been taught on it. But I've got to tell you, in the last two weeks, I've spent hours. And what I've come up with is that I know nothing. I know nothing. I know nothing. And so if you would open your Bibles up to Genesis 25, and I don't see anybody new this morning. So just a reminder of what we've been doing. We teach expositionally through a book of the Bible here at Windsor Community Church. And what that big word means is that we just go through the, the word. And whatever is there, we confront it and we ask the Lord to teach us. Rather than coming up with a topic, we'll do that occasionally, but coming up with a topic and then trying to find scripture that fits that. We go through the scripture and we ask God, what is it that you want us to learn? And I want to remind you also that the book of Genesis, like all 66 books in the Bible, are about what? His story. It is history. It's great history. It's his history on the foundation of the world. But most importantly, when you're reading God's Word, see Jesus. See Jesus. See God's plan to redeem us. It is His story. Last week we took, took a look at uh, 25 verses 1 through 28. And I'm going to be tied to my notes more today than I normally am. And it's mainly because being in the deep end with a sucking sound at the bottom, I need to have a life jacket. And these notes are my life jacket. So Genesis 25, verses 1 through 28. Last week, uh, verses 1 through 4, we saw that Abraham married Keturah. Abraham got married for the second time. He got married sometime after 130 years old. And uh, he had six more kids. And we saw that all of these kids, their lineage ends in a dead end. There really is no history that plays out today that has anything to do with these last six kids. So we saw that Abraham got married again. Um, we also observed that the, um, what's the word when you can't get pregnant? Barren. Yeah, that, that Sarah definitely was the one that was barren because Abraham didn't have any problems with having kids. Verses 5 through 6, we saw that Abraham, before he died, he made his last will and testament. He gave everything he had to Isaac. 
and he gave gifts to his other sons, which were the sons of his concubines, of his wives, of Hagar and Keturah. He gave everything he had to Isaac and some token gifts to his other sons. We saw in verses 7 through 11 that Abraham died. He lived 175 years old. We closed the chapter on Abraham. His life is over. You will revisit Abraham all throughout the Bible, but we're done studying the history of Abraham. He died at 175 years old. He died at an old age and at peace. And that was uh, prophesied by the Lord in chapter 12 and chapter 15. We saw in verses 12 through 18 that Ishmael is also done. He died. He died at 137 years old. The Lord's prophecy, the Lord's promise was fulfilled in in, uh, Ishmael's life. God said back in chapter 16, when Hagar, Ishmael's mom, was grieving, God said that I will bless your son. I will bless him with 12 sons. I'll bless Ishmael with 12 sons. They will become a great nation. It's important to know here that Isaac, who is the father of the Israelites, the father of the Jews, and Ishmael, who is the father of the Arab nations, they had conflict back in the times of Abraham, and there's conflict today, and there's going to be conflict until the Lord comes. It's Israel against the Arabian nations, and that conflict is going to be there until the Lord returns. Now, if we can take a look at verses 19 through 34 together, if we can read it together, if you do not have your own Bible there are pew Bibles on page 19 is where we're going to be reading. And I would just tell you, we're going to be uh, visiting a lot of Scripture today. None of the Scripture is going to be on the screen. And um, so if you can follow along, it would be really helpful for you. So let's start in verse 19. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We took a look at these scriptures last week, and the main takeaway was that Rebekah, like Isaac's mom, was barren. They got married at age 40, and she could not have kids. And Isaac prayed to the Lord that he would open up Rebecca's womb. And 20 years later, the Lord did. One thing that, two things that Isaac learned from his dad, one is to pray. When things are hopeless, pray. The other thing he learned from his dad is not to make the same mistakes his dad made. His dad and mom, if you remember, they prayed, they got tired of waiting, and what happened? Sarah, Abraham's wife, gave him her concubine, and they took God's providence in their own hands. So Isaac learned from his dad. He learned to pray. And he learned not to take things into his own hands. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. Within Rebekah. And Rebekah said, if this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to the Lord. And the Lord said to her, let me back up. The children struggled together within her. This lady's in pain. Um, Pregnancy is tough. We know that, don't we, ladies? It's tough. Guys, we don't have a clue. But here it says that Rebecca struggled, and it means oppress or crush. There's something going on in here that is way beyond what she should have been experiencing. So she cried out to the Lord, and she said, Lord, if this is your promise, if I am bearing the promised children, that you, the child that you promised me, why is this happening to me? Why do I have so much pain? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the other shall serve the younger. This is not the news that Rebecca wanted. Rebecca is hurting, she is in pain, and the Lord tells her that there's twins in your womb, and the older will serve the younger, and the younger will rule over the older. And furthermore, they shall be divided all the days of their life. Moms, can you imagine? Not only in pain, but the babies that you're bearing are going to hate each other from the time they get out of the womb. So Rebecca's news was bad. But remember, who is the author of this book? Moses. Who's Moses writing to? The Israelites. Where are the Israelites? They are wandering in the promised land. or They're wandering before the promised land. And, and, and Moses is writing this to them. So here is what the Israelites heard. They heard the Lord tell Rebekah that the older, excuse me, yeah, the older will serve the younger, and the younger will rule over the older. When the Israelites came out of Egypt... The first no trespassing sign they saw was from the Edomites. And the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Esau is the older brother. The Israelites are the descendants of who? Jacob. And so it brought the Israelites great comfort knowing that someday that they will rule over older brother, even though they couldn't trespass on the land. So Romans 28 is that God works all things for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose and are called according to his purpose. There are things that happen in our life that we don't understand, whether it be death, whether it be sickness, whether it be financial struggles. And this was going on in Rebecca's life, and she could not understand how the Lord could not only have her suffer, but have her sons love her and hate each other. And God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. What we're going to address in a few minutes is how is it that God could choose one child to rule over the other? How could God do that in the womb before they had a chance to do anything good or anything bad? We're going to see that he actually chose one for glory and he chose the other for destruction before they had a chance to do anything right or wrong. Are you interested in knowing God's heart on that? Me too. Let's take a look at verse 24 through 26. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Elmo. They called his name Esau. Esau means hairy. He came out hairy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name would called Jacob. Jacob literally means heel catcher. Heel catcher in Hebrew is supplanter, cheater, deceiver. Now remember, Jacob 
is the promised son. Jacob is the one that is going to continue the lineage from Abraham that's going to bring forth the Messiah that's going to crush the serpent's head and it's going to reconcile all of mankind to God. The cheater, the deceiver. And the encouragement that that brings to me, just a side note, is that the Lord can use any of us. No matter what's going on, no matter how many times we've dropped the ball, no matter how much sin we've had in our life, that the Lord can use our bad for His good. God's not the author of sin, but He can use our mistakes for good. So Jacob came out holding Esau's heel, and Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah born. 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Jacob because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. This is like that family that's on TV, whatever that one is where they're, they're fighting. This is a dysfunctional family. This is a chosen family that God's going to use to bless all the families of the earth. But this is, there's some serious dysfunction here. Right from the get-go, dad is, is favoring big brother. Mom is favoring younger brother. And it shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so. And we're going to see in the next couple of chapters that there is all kinds of problems. Now, I want to correct something. In my attempt to be funny last week, I think I offended some people. And Jacob very, very clearly is one that desires to be inside. He's one that's got whatever side of the brain it is that gives him more of, a, of, a, of an uh, uh, artsy giftedness, where he's the cook. And I made a joke that he'd be the one that's decorating the family center at Windsor Community Church. Well, he may have very well been, okay? But that is a wonderful giftedness, okay? A lot of times us guys, some of us guys, resonate with Esau. I joked that he'd be the one driving the F-150 truck, and that Jacob would be driving the cabriolet. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Jacob, as we're going to find out, is that only the Lord sees the heart. And every thought and intention of man's heart is wicked, and only the Lord is the one that can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And the Lord chose Jacob for his purposes, and Jacob submitted ultimately. Esau, as we're going to see, even though he might be a man's man, and some of us resonate with him more, he turns away from the Lord fast and never comes back. And God knew that Esau would not respond to him. So please forgive me if I offended anybody. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That's where the Edomites come from. Edom means red. That's what Edom is in Hebrew. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Jacob's no dummy. Although Jacob is trying to take God's providence into his hand. Jacob no doubt knew that God made a promise to his mom that he would rule over his older brother. And instead of waiting, Jacob tries to take providence into his own hands. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, he saw the opening and he said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. 
And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's take a look at what the birthright is. The birthright does several things. The privileges that come with the firstborn, the firstborn in that culture always got the birthright. Even though that wasn't so necessarily through the lineage uh, to bring forth the Messiah, but tradition was is that the oldest or the firstborn was to get the birthright. It was very important. The chief use was that if you had the birthright, you were the family priest. You were the spiritual leader. Second is, is the double portion of inheritance. If there's two boys, one would get two-thirds of the inheritance, the other would get a third of the inheritance. And we, we, you see that in the prodigal son story, if you've read that in Luke. The next benefit is that they would receive the father's blessing. This was huge. Esau, for a morsel of food, it says in Hebrews, sold his birthright. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews calls Esau unholy. He says that he is immoral. You see, God knew in the womb what was going to happen. Esau sold his birthright for a morsel of food. And the only thing I could come up with that was even remotely close, and this is a horrible example, but maybe he'll just give us a taste of what went on, and that is if you own your home outright. Half a million dollar house in Windsor, no debt, you own it outright. You come back from hunting men, and you are so hungry that you swing by Austin's on their 995 buffet, and you hand them the title and deed to your house for that food because you're so hungry. It is so short-sighted. And Esau was so short-sighted that he sold his birthright for a morsel of food. Esau did not appreciate that his birthright was linked to God's plan of redemption for the whole world. He had the opportunity to have God's redemptive plan go through him. Now, I'm taking away God's province here, folks. Evidence that you're a child of God is the conviction of sin and a desire to turn from sin or repent. Esau did neither. Esau despised his birthright. He says, take it, I don't care. I'm full, I'm happy, take the birthright. And a true child of God is going to, when they sin, when we sin, what? We're going to understand that there's going to be conviction of sin. Not condemnation, that's from the enemy, but conviction of sin. And then confession, what comes after confession? Is, re- is repentance, turning and walking a 180. Even though Esau's behavior was not the basis for God's sovereignty in choosing Jacob to rule over Esau, Esau's character started showing the ultimate wisdom of God's choice. Esau's character started showing the ultimate wisdom of God's choice of giving the birthright to Jacob. How in the world... Brothers and sisters, do we reconcile God choosing Jacob over Esau before they were born? How do we reconcile that? This is truly the theological deep end for me. I remember three weeks ago or so, I was sitting on Monday at Loodles with Chris Schuett and Chris Richards. 
And I was just asking these guys about their thoughts on the passages to come. And they both pointed out that part of these passages were about God's electing grace. And I said something like, I hate that. I hate that. I don't even want to face it. Remember that? I don't even want to face it. It's in God's Word. And I can tell you, after spending the last week reading and reading and reading and reading, listening to sermons of, of men on this topic, that the doctrine of election is beautiful. But I can also tell you, there's not a human being that's ever lived that understands it. Not a person. Not Spurgeon, not Edwards, not Luther, not MacArthur, not Piper, not Dean Hendrickson, not Chris Richards, and certainly not me. You know what the best commentary to use is when you're studying the Old Testament? The New Testament. The New Testament. There's nothing better than reading Scripture to prove Scripture. We're going to be taking a look at Romans 9 here in a few minutes where Paul quotes Genesis 25-23 and he says that the older shall serve the younger. And then he quotes the prophet Malachi. He says that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. I don't want to do this. How can God hate anybody? If these truths don't raise some level of emotion in you, at some point this morning or this next week, you better check your pulse. Because like all of us, I've got all kinds of lost family. And once we reconcile God's sovereign grace or election with man's free will and understand that election is truth, And if we, if we process this outside of understanding the character of God, it's, it's discouraging. We've got to understand the character of God. The question involves mystery. This topic involves mystery. In relation to God and the sovereignty of God, election, get used to mystery. Get used to it. The day that we we start saying we've got it figured out is the day that we need to ask the Lord to forgive us of pride. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all things, do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that we're never going to know. How it all fits together. And one of them is the sovereignty of God through election and free will. How those fit together. Another is end times. When the Lord's coming back. And there's probably a bunch more. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How comfortable are you, brothers and sisters, with mystery? How comfortable are you with 
paradox? I don't know about you, but I, I don't like not being in control. I want everything just buttoned up in a neat little package. You know what it says about God's Word? That it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Living and active. You know what that means? That means that, that it is... We could read the same verse a hundred times. I could read it when I'm 20, and God might give me further understanding of that verse when I'm 60. It doesn't mean that the Scripture's changed. It maybe looks at that I'm looking at it through a different light. Or maybe I examine the Scripture for the first time instead of being taught. How much of our theology is based on what we've been taught versus on what we've read? For me, a lot, honestly. A lot of what I spew out is because of what I've been taught over the last how many years I've been saved with maturity comes I believe a growing comfort with, with mystery and a growing trust of God himself with maturity comes a growing comfort with mystery it's so that we can say with David in Psalm 131 my heart is not proud I do not concern myself with matters too difficult or wonderful for me Let's not use that as an excuse not to examine the Scriptures. But at the end of the day, there's some things that we just need to trust the Lord on. Well, we need to trust the Lord with everything, but particularly with the things that we can't understand. As the years go on in your Christian walk, there may not be less mystery, but hopefully more humility. I'm not going to be able to solve this mystery today of God's electing grace. But we're going to take a look at what the scriptures say. And there's parts of it that are very clear. J.I. Packer defines election as follows. Elect means to choose out. Before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. The divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace. For it is not constrained and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are his subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind. You know, the only thing that he owes sinners is condemnation. He's a holy God, and we have sinned against a holy God. And the only thing that we deserve is eternal wrath. I want to tell you, without understanding the truth, that fallen man deserves nothing but God's wrath. You'll never fully understand God's love and His grace. I don't know why the church doesn't want to go there. But we've got to understand our complete depravity. A couple of cautions. The doctrine of election, though very important and biblical, should not define us as Christians. It is the gospel that defines us. It's the gospel that defines us. For even if we were chosen from the foundation of the earth, as it says in Ephesians, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, if it would have said that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, there'd be no salvation because there's no salvation without the cross. And it is the cross that defines us. It is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. It is because the Father drew us to himself that he loved us before we loved him. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through 
faith. That's what defines us, brothers and sisters. Our unity as Christians does not require full agreement on the doctrine of election. And I know I'm going to get challenged on this, but I've got to tell you, even in the Reformed camp, there's this. There are so many different views on election. So today, as we look at Romans 9, we're going to let God's Word speak for itself. That should happen every Sunday morning. Thank you very much. But we're going to let God's Word speak for itself. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your holy, infallible, inerrant, saving, sanctifying word. We thank you that your word is sufficient, that it is pure, that it is living, and that it is active. It is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, so that the man of God would be fully equipped. And Lord, I stand behind your word this morning. God, I acknowledge that there are mysteries that I will, I am dying to ask you. Lord, I want to acknowledge your character, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are loving, that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you came in to seek and save the lost. that you chose us, we didn't choose you. And God, I pray that I bring no offense to this message. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use these scriptures to drive us into a deeper understanding of the gospel and a deeper understanding of what it is you did for us on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9 To understand Romans 9, you've got to take a look at Romans 8. And we're not going to spend much time there, but Romans 8 is probably one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. And it talks about the benefits that we as true believers enjoy. Some of those benefits are there's no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's Spirit dwells in true believers, that we're heirs with Christ, we're adopted into His family. God's everlasting love for his children. It talks about that. At the end of chapter 8, it says nothing can separate us from his love. Not tribulation, not famine, not Satan, not death, not sickness, not different doctrines. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Then Paul, who writes Romans, starts out in chapter 9, verse 1. Verses 1 through 5, we're not going to read it, but let me tell you what's going on there. Paul is grieving because many fellow Jews, in fact, probably a majority of his fellow Jews, Paul is a Jew of Jew. Paul is from the nation of Israel. And he is grieving because a majority of his fellow Jews have been cut off from Christ because of their unbelief. They've been cut off from Christ because of their unbelief. Paul loves them so much that he says, I wish I could take their place. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having such a love for people that are perishing that you say, Lord, give them my salvation. Let me be accursed in their place. So that's what's going on here 
is that Paul is grieving over his fellow Jews that are going to be perishing in hell. First part of verse 6, let's look at it together. Paul's response is, But it is not as if the word of God has failed. This is key. It is not as if the word of God has failed. You see, the, the, the promised people are the Jews, the Israelites. It, they are the promised people that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then he looks around and he sees Jews perishing. That the, that the Messiah, the seed that's come through their line, that they are rejecting. That they're the promised people, but they're perishing. How can that be? And Paul says in verse 6, But it is not as if the word of God has failed. We've just got a wrong understanding of the promise. Let's look at the second half of verse 6 all the way down through verse 13. It says, for. Whenever you see for, that means because. Because. So Paul says, for or because... Well, first of all, Paul is going to explain that God's promise of salvation is for those who are chosen and believe, not for a particular nation. This promise are for those who are chosen and who believe, not for a particular nation. The promise of salvation. He goes on in the second half of of verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, meaning the children of the wives of Hagar and Keturah, who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Don't miss this. And not only so, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born yet and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is really important. This is really important. Because God chooses based on nothing that we have done, good or bad. And it says, neither by will or exertion. You can't will yourself into adoption. You can't work hard enough to be God's child that he chooses. And we're going to see here that the doctrine of grace, and I think everybody in this room would agree with the doctrine of grace as it says in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of a work of our own. We accept that, but we have a hard time with election. It's saying the same thing. One is just now, the other one's earlier. And folks, this is going to take a lot of study on your own, and I'm game for any kind of groups that we want to put together just to study this deeper. He continues in verse 14. Paul anticipates the most common objection to this. Paul anticipates the objection or the tension. 
And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? How can it be? That's not fair. God, how could you choose somebody before they were born and before they did anything good or bad? It's not fair. And Paul says, by no means. For he gives an example from Exodus. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, there's that will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We can't work for salvation and earn it. It is God who chooses by His mercy. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy, God has mercy on whoever, whoever he wills, excuse me, and he hardens who, whomever he wills. This happens all throughout Scripture. Another objection and response. Let the Scripture speak, folks. Romans 19 to 24. Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? Who can resist His will? In other words, how can God blame anyone for sin and unbelief when He has sovereignly determined the person's destiny? It's a good question, isn't it? How can God sovereignly declare somebody dead in their trespasses with no hope for salvation if they can't own their own sin? I don't necessarily have an answer for that. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? If it was me talking, it wasn't, it was Paul. I'd say, probably say, good question. Good question. But he knows who he's talking to. He's talking to the unregenerate Jews. The unregenerate Jews that are saying it's not fair. And Paul rebukes him and he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to answer back? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience... Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I was just thinking through some examples. Who did He have patience with in the Old Testament before He unleashed His wrath on them so that the riches of His glory would be made known because of His mercy? Think of Noah. Think of the patience that He had with that stubborn, obstinate group of people that denied God, they laughed at Noah. A hundred and some years, Noah built that ark. And those people had an opportunity to turn. And they didn't. And God knew they wouldn't. But God made known the riches of His glory by preserving a remnant, like He's done all throughout Scripture. Put Noah and his family on the ark. 
And from that became the generations of Shem, the generations of Terah, the generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through to bring forth the Messiah. Folks, uh, I submit this for further study, but I got goosebumps when I just said that. Because God has a sovereign plan that every one of us deserve his wrath. And by knowing that, that magnifies the knowledge of his mercy. And it causes us to glorify him. Let me read verse 23 and 24 again. Start verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Folks, people want to make Romans 9 about the nations. It's not about the nations. It's about us. And what he's saying here is that the Jews are now equal, not sole heirs of the promise. We see in Romans 9 that we've been grafted in as Gentiles, that we are co-heirs, that we, are, we have a co-inheritance with the Jew, the, the nation of Israel, who inherited the promise. A woman once said to Mr. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Once we understand that that is the dilemma, it doesn't make it 100% easy for me. I still struggle with God making decisions before we have an opportunity to respond, to be good or bad. But the bigger mystery is, how could he love me? And I'm thankful that he chose me before the beginning of time. Before he saw my life, or he knew my life, I guess. I'm grateful that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Election does not exclude anybody from the kingdom of God who wants in. Rather, it includes in God's kingdom those whose direction is away from the kingdom of God and those who would otherwise remain forever in the kingdom of sin and death. You might be saying, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound like, Dan, like, like God is turning away from those that would have been saved, that God would have chosen them. You misunderstand. You see, we envision God standing at the door and the masses, the throngs are lined up. And God walking through and going, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you, a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. That's not the way it works. The reality is, is that there'd be no one in line. No one would be in line. It says that nobody seeks after God in Romans 3. It's a repeat of Psalm 31. There is no one who seeks after God. Not only does God not do any, meeny, miny, mo, the people that are in line, is that we are running as fast as we can towards hell. If it wasn't for God's sovereign grace and election, that heaven would be empty and hell would be full. It would be overflowing. So election is the most loving act on the planet. 
God stopped me. And he stopped you from running towards hell if you know God, if you know Jesus. Every four years we get to pick a president. But that's not the way it works with redemption. We don't get to elect our redeemer. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We try to choose our leaders based on track records. Praise be to God that he chooses us in spite of our track record. Amen? The church has lost its grip on the doctrine of grace. The church has lost its grip on the doctrine of grace. We sell a cheap grace in the church in America. We sell a grace that allows people to pray the prayer, and then we tell them they're saved, and they go on living any way they want. That's cheap grace. Grace is free. Grace is unmerited favor. But God's unmerited favor demands a response that if there's regeneration inside of us, that we are going to want to live full out for the Lord in full obedience. We no longer believe that God could send us to hell. John 6 says, this is, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Election and grace, folks, are inseparable. For both show that salvation is God's work alone and that it is nothing to do with works. So what's fair? You know what's fair? Getting what we deserve. That's fair. That's fair. And I would say that, that understanding the theology of God's electing grace will change the way that we respond to God. Once we know that we deserve nothing but hell and that when we respond to God's electing grace when he's drawn us to himself, we're not going to live in the same selfish, woe is me way as we do in the church in America. I love this quote. I put it in the e-news. It's from Jonathan Edwards. And he says, study the Bible for the sake of heartfelt worship and practical obedience. Study the Bible for the sake of heartfelt worship and practical obedience. What that means is, is that when we study God's Word, and that can be a problem in a church like Windsor Community Church when we teach through the Word expositionally, because at some level, Chris, Dean, and I, those guys worse than me, because they're not here, I can say that, we're eggheads, all three of us. We get things stuck here, and we don't bring it to here. And our study of the Word should lead to heartfelt worship and practical obedience. Let me give you some practical things to take home. And we are um, a little bit behind. Give me just a few more minutes. A couple of uh, practical things to remember. By understanding the doctrine of grace, which is the election, it should cause a humility before God, knowing that God chose us based not on our merit, but on His grace. It should destroy our pride, and it should humble us, knowing that He left us for dead, that we were dead in our trespasses. The last time I looked, when somebody's dead, outside of Lazarus, Jesus, and a few others that wrote some heretical books in the last 10 years, nobody raises from the dead without God calling them from the grave. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Second takeaway, this should cause us to understand our assurance, our assurance of salvation. If he chose you, if you are his, if you put your faith in him, and by the way, the doctrine of salvation is for the believer. It's not an outreach strategy. It is to build humility in us, to know that what God has started in us, nothing can take away. Romans 8, 31-39, if I can just read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me give you an illustration from Donald Gray Barnhouse. I love this illustration. Imagine a cross so large that it has a door on it. And over the exterior of the door was a sign that read these words. Picture walking into this, this door here. And above the door is Matthew 11. Right up here. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We walk in. We look up on the other side. And we see these words. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So we walk in being invited, and the best news on the planet is when we get in there, right now, believers, the best news on the planet is knowing that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Knowledge of the doctrine of salvation should lead us to worship. If you're taking notes, you might want to just write down Romans 11, 33 through 36. I'm going to read it. What the heck? It's unbelievable. If you're going to read 8 and 9, you've got to go through the end of 11. Because this is where Paul finishes. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
And folks, this should cause us to live on mission. Please, if, if knowing that you've been chosen in Christ before the beginning of time, if you use that as an excuse to not proclaim his excellencies, you're missing it. You're missing it. I don't know how those fit together. All I know is that the Lord told us to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved us. He said that people are saved by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What it does for me is it takes the pressure off. It helps me know that there's nothing I can do to save somebody. What I can do is I can boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And that I know that it says that the word will not return void. I don't know who God's chosen and who he hasn't chosen. But we need to proclaim boldly. It gives us the freedom to not make people our projects. We don't have to sneak around and, and make people our projects. Okay? God knows their heart. God knows their ultimate destiny. We hold the truth. We hold the key that unlocks the door of election. And that truth is a life-saving gospel. And they need to hear the gospel. So can I encourage you to take this truth, rejoice that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the earth, that he's given you everything you need for life and godliness, that he's put you next to neighbors, he's put you in a workplace where there's people that are perishing, that need to hear the word. And if you're here today where you've yet to bend your knee, you've yet to respond to that calling, there's no day like today. There is, on the other side of that fence, is the most amazing life, and God is beckoning you to come. Come, if you're weary and heavy laden, come and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your love for us. Lord, I don't fully understand. You said that you don't desire for one to perish. You said you came to seek and save the lost. God, help us to not think with our emotions. Emotions aren't always bad, God. But we, we want to be taught and led by your Holy Spirit as noble Bereans as we dig into your word and we examine it and we look for truths that blow apart our paradigms. God, would you keep us from arguing and from dividing over these kind of doctrines? Would you help us speak the truth and love to one another? And Holy Spirit, we thank you that ultimately you are our teacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.